Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise. You never know, but it's the best from the golden age of radio. We'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. A wave of shoplifting breaks out in your city. There's no pattern to the thief's operations. There are no leads. Weeks pass. The number of thefts keep growing. Your job? Stop them. In Fatima, the difference is quality. Confirmed by smokers coast to coast. In Fatima, the difference is quality. Confirmed by latest Fatima sales reports. Yes, Fatima quality. The finest domestic and Turkish tobaccos, superbly blended, to make Fatima extra mild. To give you a much different, much better flavor and aroma. So compare Fatima. See for yourself why thousands and thousands of king-size cigarette smokers are switching to Fatima every day. Enjoy all the advantages of extra length plus Fatima quality which no other king-size cigarette has. Remember, Fatima's cost the same as the cigarette you're now smoking. But in Fatima, the difference is quality. Next time, buy Fatima. Best of all king-size cigarettes. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, August 22nd. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Wisdom. My name's Friday. It was 2.18 p.m. when we got to Anthony's store for women, the general manager's office. Mr. Addy? Come right in. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Romero, sir. I talked to you on the phone. This is my partner, Sergeant Friday. How do you do? How are you? Certainly glad to see him. Uh, Let me get another chair here. Thank you very much. I haven't had time for my after-lunch cigarette yet. Care to join me? No, No, thank thank you, sir. I got a light for you. Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, I guess you know what the problem is. No need for me to go all the way back and start from the beginning. I didn't get it quite clear on the phone, Mr. Elliott. Uh, when did this last thing come up? Well, the way we have figured out, it must have happened around closing time yesterday, between 5, 5.30, we figured. The store was pretty crowded at that time, was it? Yeah, it's pretty busy. We had a special pre-winter showing in the fur department. No one noticed it was gone until after we'd closed up. Uh-huh. Can you give us a description of the piece of merchandise, Mr. Elliott? Uh, yes, yeah. We got it right here. 
Uh, complete description, you see. Silver blue mink stole, satin lining, two slash pockets, silver chain fastener. Complete description of it for you. Yes, I see. Thank you. These are the code numbers and the serial numbers on it, Sergeant. That's right. The whole thing's getting way out of hand, Sergeant. We've had a lot of things lifted from the store the last few weeks, but nothing this big. This keeps up. I don't see how we're going to get our insurance renewed. I guess your store detectives are working on this latest one, the missing fur. Yes, but it's the same as all the recent cases we've had. They haven't been able to find a thing. All the personnel have been checked. All the people who were around the department when the fur was stolen. I mean, those it was possible to check on. As far as we know, they're all clear. Uh-huh. What were the circumstances of this thing, Mr. Elliott? I mean, was this mink stole on a display rack? Did one of the models have it on? Exactly how was it? Well, it was modeled, yes. After it was shown to several parties, it was put back in stock. We have a special rack for the stoles, regular enclosed cabinets, sliding doors on it. Cabinets usually open during store hours. I see. There was a store detective in the department at the time. All those salespeople were standing around. I can't understand why one of them didn't see it happen. Mm-hmm. Mr. Ellis, you say this is the first time an expensive item like this has been lifted from your store? That's right. How about the personnel, Mr. Ellis? You say there's been a check made on each one of them since this thing started? Yes, sir, that's correct. And there's no reason to be suspicious at all of any one of your people? Well, as a matter of fact, there is one, Sergeant. Sales girl. She was up in five in the Sweet 16 shop. Then she was moved down to cosmetics on the street floor. What is it that makes you suspicious for her? Uh, well, before I say anything, I want to make it perfectly clear to you. We've never had any real proof that there was something wrong there. Uh, Dorothy started with us eight years ago. That's that's a girl's name, Dorothy Kirkman. Mm-hmm. She came to us right out of high school. She seemed to... Be doing all right, get along with the customers, dressed neatly, always on time. And all of a sudden, this shoplifting started. We didn't think there was any connection at first. Thought it was only coincidence. How do you mean, sir? Well, just for instance, wait a minute. I'll get the file on that right here on the desk. Huh? I see. There you are. Here it is. Out of the first 14 items that disappear, six of them are out of Dorothy Kirkman's department, right out of her section. Cashmere sweaters, expensive blouses, scarves. As I say, at first we wrote it off to coincidence, but it kept recurring. Her section almost seemed to be the focal point of all the shoplifting. That was at the beginning, of course. Did you have the Kirkman girl watched, Mr. Elliott? Yes, we did. The department had kept an eye on her, and, well, I guess Dorothy noticed it. She resented it quite a bit. Had a little spat with the head of the department. We thought it'd be best for everyone if she transferred. So we had to move downstairs to cosmetics. Mm-hmm. How did that arrangement work out? Well, for the first few weeks, fine. And we started missing things out of cosmetics. A lot of it didn't amount to too much. A lot of it did. Makeup kits, expensive perfumes. This time we called her in, tried to talk to her about it in a nice way. She got very resentful. Mm-hmm. She denied knowing anything about it, is that it? Yeah, she got very upset. Of course, there is one thing I will say... The items in cosmetics are on display all over the counter. It's fell easy for anybody to pick them up. The fact still remains that stealing began in her department upstairs. She moves over to cosmetics, and all of a sudden, the losses increase there. What would you figure? Yes, sir, I see what you mean. I wonder if you could have somebody point out this Dorothy Kirkman for us, Mr. Elliott. I think maybe we'd better have a talk with her. We'd like to help you, Sergeant. I'm afraid that's not possible. Oh? How do you mean? She quit last Saturday. We got all the information available on Dorothy Kirkman from the store's personnel files, and then we called the office and gave them a description of the stolen fur. We asked them to check the Kirkman girl through R&I. She had no previous criminal record. 
Before we left the store, we went to the fur department, talked to all the salespeople concerned, but we were unable to come up with anything new regarding the theft of the silver blue mink stole. We drove out to Dorothy Kirkman's last known address. She wasn't at home, but her mother was. The mother told us that the day before, her daughter had started on a new job as a salesgirl at the house of Raymond, an exclusive shop specializing in all types of cosmetics. We checked the phone book and found that the house of Raymond was located in the same 10-block stretch along Wilshire Boulevard where the shoplifting campaign was going on. It was one of the few places along there that the thieves hadn't bothered. It was three blocks from Anthony's store for women, the Kirkman girl's former place of employment. 4.05 p.m., we located her behind one of the front counters. Across the aisle, half a dozen women were listening to a makeup demonstrator giving a talk on complexion care. Dorothy Kirkman seemed pleasant and cooperative. No, I don't mind telling you. I got sick and tired of being called a thief. That's why I quit Anthony's. A little of that goes a long way. You started work here at Raymond's yesterday, Miss Kirkman. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I think I'm going to like it a lot better than Anthony's. Mm-hmm. While you were working here at Anthony's, ma'am, I suppose you'd heard that quite a bit of shoplifting was going on. Yes, I knew about it. Guess every girl in the store knew it. They had a big personnel meeting about it. You have any suspicions of your own, Miss Kirkman? How do you mean that? Well, I mean, was there anyone in particular that you might have been a little suspicious of? Maybe one of the customers? No. I've waited on some real weird ones, but I didn't see any of them ever try to walk out with anything. Mm -hmm. All I knew was what Mr. Elliott told us at that meeting. Well, this might be an embarrassing question for you, miss, and we'd appreciate an honest answer. Yes? What about the sales girls you worked with? Did any of them ever give you cause to be suspicious? You mean, do I think any of them were doing the stealing? No. There were some of them I didn't like. I didn't trust them either. But I wouldn't accuse him of stealing. I wouldn't accuse anybody unless I had proof. That's more than I can say for some people I know. Well, by any chance, did you happen to be in Anthony's this past Monday? Monday? No, why do you ask? When you were working on the fifth floor up the street at Anthony's, we understand that when the merchandise first started disappearing, a pretty good percentage of it was out of your section. That's what they told me, yes. And then when you were transferred downstairs to the cosmetics counter, quite a few things started disappearing from there. Now, we'd like an honest answer, Miss Kirkman. Do you have any explanation at all for this? I'll tell you the same thing I told them at the store, Sergeant. I can't explain it. But I didn't have anything to do with it, believe me. Well, you'll have to admit, miss, it's pretty much of a coincidence, isn't it? Sergeant, you can call it anything you want to. I didn't have anything to do with it. The only thing I ever took home from that store was my paycheck. Would you excuse me, please? Customer, I have to wait on. Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Huh? What do you think? I don't know. She's a nice enough girl. Seems to be telling the truth. Could be a coincidence the way it worked out. Nothing to prove otherwise. 4.38 p.m. We finished questioning the suspect, Dorothy Kirkman, and Ben and I went back to the office and made arrangements to have the girl kept under temporary surveillance. A bulletin had been gotten out on the missing fur stole, the pawn shop detail had been notified, and a description of the fur had been placed on the stolen property list. The following day, along with Sergeants Dick Rubles and Jim Tabor, we continued our investigation of the latest shoplifting complaints. It went slow, a lot of legwork and no progress. Like the dozens of other items of merchandise which had vanished in the last eight weeks, there wasn't a trace of the missing fur stole. More men were added to the special detail on duty in the 10-block area where the stealing was going on. Anybody in the city who'd ever served time for shoplifting was checked and rechecked. Constant surveillance was maintained over a half a dozen known thieves who we figured might be involved. It got us nothing. Wednesday, August 23rd, 5.30 p.m. No leads, no progress. We went back to the office. 
sure hope I get home before 6 o'clock tonight. I want to see that shoe repairman out in our neighborhood. Well, what's the matter? You need some half-soles? No. I went in his shop the other day, and he conned me into a new set of art supports. Mm. Matter of fact, he didn't even call them art supports. What did he say they were? Metatarsal supports. You know, supports from metatarsal? Yeah. That's one of the bones in the foot. He sold me a pair of these things and told me I should wear only one of them in my right shoe. Yeah, what's the matter with that? Isn't it working out? Miserable. Feel like I've been walking around with one foot in a bucket. I'll check the book. Okay. Anything? Yeah, sure is from Robles. What do you got? That mink fur. It's been found. Two hours before, at approximately 3.30 p.m. in the main depot of the Santa Fe bus lines, a 38-year-old housewife, a Mrs. Harriet Briggs, noticed an unclaimed parcel lying on one of the benches in the depot waiting room. When it became apparent to Mrs. Briggs that the parcel was either lost or forgotten, she picked it up and took it to the clerk in charge of lost and found articles. In checking the package for some kind of identification, they discovered the silver-blue mink stole inside. The car was dispatched to pick up the fur, and it was identified as the garment taken from Anthony's fur salon. Mrs. Briggs volunteered to come along to the office to give what information she could. A stakeout was placed at the bus depot in case anybody called for the package. 5.50 p.m., we interviewed Mrs. Briggs in the squad room. That's right, officer. It was just a little before 3.30. I was in the bus depot there waiting for my husband. That's when I first noticed this package lying on the bench just across from me. I see. Would you go on, please, Miss Briggs? I didn't think anything of it at first. I went on reading the afternoon paper, but no one came for the package. It was just lying there. Was there a long time. Well, how long would you say, ma'am? I mean, before you picked it up and took it to the lost and found clerk. Oh, I'd say 20 minutes, a uh, half an hour. That much at least. I left it with the young man at the counter there, and I told him I'd be back to see if anyone claimed it. Well, when I did get back, that's after I had dinner with my husband, Carl. We found out what was in the package. It's certainly strange. Don't you think, officer? Yes, ma'am. Did you happen to notice at all who it was that left the package there? Well, I'm not really sure, officer, but I think I know who it was. A tall woman. She had a brown jacket, if I remember rightly. I think you'd say she was in her early 30s. Have you ever seen this woman before, Miss Briggs? No, I never did. Very attractive, as I recall. She wore glasses. Anything else about her you might have noticed? Let me think. She had blonde hair. I remember that much. And the reason I do remember it is because she wore it like I used to when I was a girl, you know. Sort of back in a, in a bun like this. And you're pretty sure that this woman you describe is the one who left the package there? Well, if I remember rightly, she's the... She's the only one that sat across from me. I guess it must be her. If it wasn't her, I don't know who else it could have been. All right, Miss Briggs, thank you very much. We appreciate it. That beautiful fur. I know that woman must be just sick about losing it. Certainly hope you find her, officer. Yes, ma'am, so do we. <laughs> We had the stats office make a run for us and all females with shoplifting records who fitted the description of the woman who'd left the mink stole in the waiting room at the bus depot. The following morning, we checked with the men on stakeout at the depot. They told us nobody had come back to report losing such a parcel. Together with Rubles and Tabor, we spent most of the day checking out the names on the list of known shoplifters which the stats office had made up for us, names of possible suspects who physically resembled the tall blonde woman seen at the depot. We got nowhere. 
Either they had ironclad alibis or they had since moved out of the city. We ran down every possible angle on the freak recovery of the missing fur stove. During the next ten days, the case got more involved than it already was. Some of the stolen articles of new merchandise began showing up, but not through any of the channels we expected. Some of the items were found dumped in sidewalk refuse cans. Some were found in hotel lobbies, in the post office, in theaters. Some were found tossed in vacant lots. The only logical answer we could figure was that it was the work of somebody who was stealing for just the love of stealing. A kleptomaniac. Tuesday, September 4th, a 15-year-old girl in one of the exclusive residential neighborhoods reported finding two parcels containing women's clothing and expensive costume jewelry. They still had the price tags on them, and they totaled $360. Ben and I drove out to talk to the girl, a Patricia Denvers. Where'd you happen to find these things, Patricia? Pretty lot right down the block there. I was on my way home from the show. I took the things home and showed my mother. She called the police. If nobody claims this package with the costume jewelry, can I keep it? Certainly beautiful. No, I'm afraid not, miss. We know who the things belong to. We're going to have to return them. Oh, I certainly don't understand that. Well, how do you mean? Well, as far as I could see, she threw the things away. I thought she didn't want them. What do you mean, who didn't want them? Well, the lady who threw them in the empty lot. You saw who it was that threw the packages in that lot, did you? Yes, I was on my way home from the show, just like I told you. I could see this lady walking up ahead of me. She was about a block away, I guess. When she went by the lot, I saw her take these packages from under her arm and toss them in the grass. She wouldn't do that if she wanted them, would she? Did you get a good look at this woman? You have any idea what she looks like? She's a good-looking woman. Tall. She has beautiful blonde hair. Her husband's a doctor. And you know who she is? You've seen her before? Well, I don't know her to talk to. I just see her around the neighborhood. Does she live around here? Do you know that? Yeah, right next door to my girlfriend. are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. If you smoke king-size cigarettes, listen to Fatima's amazing new offer. Buy a pack of Fatimas. Enjoy their extra mildness and superbly blended tobaccos. If you don't like Fatimas better than the king-size cigarette you are now smoking, return the pack with the unused Fatimas and we'll give you your money back plus postage. We make this amazing offer because we believe Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. Smokers all over the country are confirming this every day. Here is the latest state-by-state report. State 1, Fatima sales up 69%. 2, sales up 118%. 3, sales up 92%. 4, Sales up 142%. And those are just a few. Remember, if you're not convinced Fatima is better than your present king-size cigarette, just return the pack with the unsmoked Fatimas before December 1st and get your money back plus postage. Fatima, Box 37, New York 1. Buy Fatima. Best of all king-size cigarettes. Tuesday, September 4th, 5.15 p.m. With the help of the 15-year-old girl, Patricia Denvers, we got the name and address of the woman who had been seen tossing the parcels of stolen merchandise into a vacant lot in the west end of the city. The woman was identified as a Mrs. Virginia Sterling, the wife of a Dr. Bruce Sterling, a fairly prominent young surgeon with offices in Beverly Hills. Mrs. Sterling and her husband had no children. They leased a richly furnished apartment in a residential section of the city that was considered better than the upper middle class. We checked Virginia Sterling through R&I, but she had no previous criminal record that we knew of. 
Together with Sergeants Rubles and Tabor, we covered the various stores along Wilshire Boulevard that had been victimized in the recent shoplifting campaign. We found that Mrs. Sterling had charge accounts at almost every one of the stores. Generally speaking, we found her accounts in very good standing, and among the store people, she was regarded as what is referred to as a fine customer, a good spender, and a good credit risk. Right down to the Retail Credit Association, there was nothing but favorable reports on the woman. 7.15 p.m., Ben and I had a hamburger and some chili and a cup of coffee for dinner, and then we drove out to the apartment of Dr. Sterling and his wife. Mrs. Sterling answered the door and invited us in. We identified ourselves. She told us the doctor was out on a call. She showed us into the living room. Modern furniture, indirect lighting, expensive rugs. Won't you sit down, gentlemen? Thank you very much. Should I get you a drink? I was just having my coffee and brandy. No, thank you, Stan. I really don't know when the doctor will be back. He was called over to the hospital. Is there anything I can help you with? Well, as a matter of fact, Mrs. Sterling, we came out to talk to you, not your husband. Oh, really? What is it you wanted to talk to me about, Sergeant Romero? Well, ma'am, we understand that you do quite a bit of your shopping along Wilshire Boulevard. Is that right? Well, yes, I shop downtown quite often. Except for the problem of parking, I find it a lot more convenient. Why do you ask? Miss Sterling, do you do much of your shopping at Anthony's? I believe that's out in the Wilshire district. Yes, I do. For my sports clothes, especially. They have a very good selection. Mm-hmm. Would you remember if you were in Anthony's on the 22nd of last month? I believe that was a Tuesday. On a Tuesday? No, I don't think I could remember one way or the other. I really don't have any special day for shopping. I just go when I feel like it or when I need something. Have you ever been in the first line at Anthony's, ma'am? Have you ever made any purchases there? I suppose I've been in almost every department at Anthony's at one time or another. I can tell you, though, I've never bought any furs there. As I told you, the main reason I go there at all is because of their sportswear. Could you tell me what this is about, please? Routine investigation, ma'am. I wonder if you could tell us this. Um, do you have any occasion to travel in the area of the Santa Fe bus depot? By bus? No. I don't think I've been on a bus since... Well, since I've been married, and that'll be six years this coming December. You've never been in the Santa Fe bus depot downtown, then? No. I think I know where it is. I've driven past it. I've never been inside, though. Why should you want to know that? Well, Miss Sterling, we're going to be honest with you. This has to do with an investigation we're on. Now, we've had a couple of reports that you were seen at the Santa Fe bus depot on August 23rd. That was on a Wednesday. Reports came from pretty reliable people. Well, I certainly consider myself reliable, and I say I've never been there. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like some kind of explanation for this questioning. You mean you have no idea why we drove out here to talk to you? Well, of course not. Number one, I don't understand your questions at all. Number two, I'd like to know what they have to do with me. Well, it has this to do with you, ma'am. Last August 23rd, a woman in a brown sports jacket answering your description left a package in the Santa Fe bus depot. This package contained a mink stole taken from Anthony's. The woman who left the package in the depot fits your description perfectly. That's so? It's a coincidence. Yes, ma'am, maybe. I suppose you've read in the papers about the big increase in shoplifting. Most of it's taking place right in the area where you say you do most of your buying. Well, we've checked out every single one of the cases, Mrs. Sterling. It took us a long time. We found a dozen salespeople in those stores. Every one of them tells us that you were around a particular store when the shoplifting took place. Law of averages, Mrs. Sterling. You show up too often in the reports. Would you please leave my house? Both of you, please. I'm sorry, Miss Sterling, but you'll have to come along with us. What do you mean by that? Don't you know you can get in trouble making false accusations? I'm going to call my husband right now. Yes, ma'am, if you like. Go right ahead. Sergeant. Yes, ma'am. What is it? 
What do you want to know? You can tell me. I think you know already. What do you want? Tell me, please. We've got your story, ma'am. Right up to this afternoon, you went shopping today. You stole things as usual. When you tried to get rid of them, you were seen right in this neighborhood. The vacant lot down in the next corner, you threw them away there. Somebody saw you. They didn't know it was me. Yes, ma'am. They knew it was you. Yes. How can I make them understand? Do you know? No, ma'am. Horrible. Shame. I couldn't tell my husband. I couldn't tell Bruce. I couldn't. Well, never mind. We'll tell him for you. p.m. We got in the car and drove Mrs. Sterling downtown to the city hall. We took her to the interrogation room, called a police stenographer, and we began to take her complete statement. One of the first things she did was to admit full responsibility for the series of shopliftings which had been going on for over two months. She told us that her kleptomania, the urge to steal things, had started with her as far back as her junior high school years. She admitted as a girl she stole books, tablets, pencils, pieces of chalk. And as she grew older, it seemed to get more serious with her. It carried over into her college years. And that's when her stealing first got her into trouble. It's when I joined this sorority. It was just like high school. I was all alone. We had a lot of clever girls in our house. Some of them were smart. Some of them were pretty. All of them seemed to be doing something except me. I had to prove it to them. I guess I had to prove it to myself. I was smart, too. Uh-huh. See, you figured that taking things was the best way to prove that. Yes, I suppose so. Of course, it wasn't easy, you know. The awful part was I got caught one day. It was kind of a relief in a way. I mean, how could they know I was just as smart as they were if they didn't find out what I was doing? Did you stay on at college after that, Miss Sterling? Oh, no, I couldn't after that. They voted me out of the sorority. There wasn't anything to do but leave, so I left. Uh-huh. What happened after that? I went to New York and stayed with an aunt I have there. I got a job. I had several jobs. The same thing came up again. I lost two of the jobs. Same thing over again. I just couldn't help it. Always means so much to me. Taking things, not being caught, getting away. Getting away. The things I took, they, they never meant anything to me. Nothing. Just taking them, not having anyone knowing. That's all that was important. It made up for that feeling, being all alone. Mm, yes, ma'am. And this thing went on, I mean, even after you were married? No, not at first. I guess maybe a year or two. We were very happy, Bruce and I. And then he got busy, came out here and began to build his practice. I didn't see as much of him. We both wanted children. We wanted them very much. There weren't any. Bruce began to spend more time away from home. Just like before, same thing. I wasn't important. I was all alone again. Wasn't anybody. You know what I mean, don't you, Sergeant? Yes, ma'am. There ought to be an answer someplace. There isn't anything worse than being alone. Is there? I get it. Interrogation room Friday. Yeah, Dick. Mm-hmm. He is on his way now? Yeah, right. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Sterling just called. Said he was on his way in. He ought to be here in a couple of minutes. I don't want to see Bruce. He's so good. I wouldn't know how to tell him. Don't worry, ma'am. He'll be all right. No. I'm alone. He's alone. It'll never be all right anymore. Well, he's on his way in now and he wants to see you. What can I tell him? What's it going to be like? 
What's going to happen after this? I don't know, ma'am, but you won't be alone anymore. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 9th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 88, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. And now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. Friends, a few minutes ago, we told you exactly why smokers all over the country are switching to king-size Fatimas. It's because Fatimas are extra mild, because they have a much better flavor and aroma. Now, if you haven't tried Fatimas yet, here's where you come in. We feel so sure that you'll enjoy Fatima quality that we make this offer. Buy a pack of Fatimas. If you don't like Fatimas better than the king-size cigarette you've been smoking, just return the pack and the unsmoked cigarettes and we'll send you your money back, plus postage. You see, we're convinced that Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. Buy a pack of Fatimas today. I know you'll agree. Mrs. Virginia Sterling was tried and convicted on several counts of grand theft and received the sentence as prescribed by law, the terms to run concurrently. Grand theft is punishable by imprisonment for not less than one or more than ten years. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Counterspy, next on NBC. Yeah? 
How you doing with Bryson? Did he tell you anything? No, he won't admit a thing. How about the other two men? No, nothing. They're sitting tight, waiting for their lawyer to show up. Had all three of them checked through R&I. Bryson's a two-time loser, burglary, GTA. His two partners served time for robbery. We shouldn't have too much trouble putting them away. We got a good enough collection of physical evidence. Well, maybe. Heard from the crime lab yet? No, not yet. I'd feel a lot better about it if we'd get Bryson to cop out. Let's call him again, huh? Yeah, might well nothing to lose. Go ahead. Keep your seat, Bryson. Got a few more questions for you. Excuse me. I thought you had it all squared away by now. I thought you were going to sack and leave by now. No, afraid not, Bryson. You haven't even given us a story yet. Well, I told you I didn't have anything to do with it. It seems pretty obvious I didn't. I thought you'd take my word for it. Can you think of any reason why we should? You lied to us once already, didn't you? I didn't lie to you. I told you the truth. I, I didn't break into that church. I didn't have anything to do with it. On the way in here, we asked you if you'd ever been arrested before, and you told us no. Our record bureau says you're a two-time loser. Oh, well... I'm, I'm sorry about that, Sergeant. I really am. When you picked me up, I guess I got a little nervous. I, I, I didn't mean to lie to you. I was just a little mixed up, I guess. You had a little time to settle down. You ought to be able to tell us your story now. Just relax and take your time, huh? Martin? Well, what did the other two fellows tell you? Miller and Henry? Well, what difference did that make to you? Well, it might make a lot of difference, Sergeant. Well, you just tell us your story. That's all we ask. What were you doing at the scene of the burglary? What business did you have there? If you weren't mixed up in it, you got nothing to hide. I haven't got anything to hide. I just don't want to involve a lot of innocent people, that's all. Anything you tell us is going to help you, you know that. Well, how about it? All right, Sergeant. Strictly confidential, huh? Well, one of those other fellows you picked up tonight, the dark-haired fellow, his name's Miller. Tony Miller. He's engaged to marry my sister. Yeah, well, I said you had to do that. Now, please, give me a chance. All right. I'd like to lay it all out for you. Go ahead. Well, ever since my sister got engaged to him, I've been worried about it. I never liked him to begin with. Lately, I've been keeping an eye on Miller, him and that friend of his, Henderson. Yeah. I knew they were up to something, and then I read in the paper about that string of church burglaries, the guys breaking into churches, nothing up to say. Yeah. Well, I had an idea as Miller and his friend. Well, how do you mean, Bryson? What made you think it was in? Well, I had an idea, that's all. I, I couldn't prove anything. It was just a hunch. You must have had some reason to suspect them. Well, nothing definite, no. I, I, I just knew something was wrong that they were up to something. Well, then, early tonight, I saw a friend of Tony Miller, the one of the bars in the neighborhood. I talked to him a while, and he finally told me that Miller and Henderson were out working a deal. Said they were going to break into a church over on 8th Street and knock over the city. Well, how come this friend of Miller let you in on it? Well, I guess he thought I was a pretty close friend of Tony's. He knew Tony was going to marry my sister. Anyway, when I found out about it, I got over to that church as fast as I could. I, I wanted to find Miller and Henderson and try and talk him out of it. I didn't want any guy who was going to marry my sister getting into trouble like that. But, you know, maybe going to jail for burglary. No, Miller's been in jail before. I suppose you knew that. Yeah, I knew it, but that was before he was engaged to my sister. You met Miller and Henderson outside the church, did you? No, I was too late. They'd already broken into the place. So I, I went around the back of the church, and I saw one of the stained glass windows was broken where they'd gotten in. I climbed up on the sill there, and I could see him working inside. It was some kind of a small back room. They were working on the safe, both of them, Miller and Henderson. That's so. What'd you do then? Why, I tried to talk them out of it. They wouldn't listen. Mm -hmm. I suppose you can prove your story. I mean, that friend you met in the bar, the one who tipped you off about the burger, and you think you're willing to back up his story. Well, I'm not sure, Sergeant. He might lie. He might not want to get involved. How about Miller and Henderson? They'll back it up. Well, if you weren't involved in the deal, there wouldn't be any reason for them to implicate you. Would... Well, Tony Miller thinks it's my fault he's in jail. He hates me. You can't take his word for anything. Probably the first thing he'd do is lie about it, and Henderson, too. Well, who you got to corroborate your story? Well, maybe nobody, but it's the truth. I swear to you, it's the truth. I'll tell the same thing in court if I have to. they got to believe me. You're asking a lot, Matthew. That's the way it happens, so help me. Yeah. Now, tell me the truth, Sergeant. You know I didn't have a hand in it. If it goes to court, they couldn't convict me, could they? Come on, what do you think? I think you're a liar. <laughs> to the working detective, the one logical way to appraise a known criminal is by his record. You estimate him the same way you check a particular make of automobile, a racehorse, or a radio set by past performance. 
By refusing to buy his trumped-up story, we didn't figure that we were doing the suspect Charles Bryson an injustice. Bryson was 37 years old. He'd spent 13 of those 37 years in prison, either the county jail or the state penitentiary. His criminal record dated back to the time he was 20 years old. Besides serving numerous shorter terms for lesser offenses in the county jail, Bryson had spent two terms in the state penitentiary for burglary. Despite the efforts of the probation officers, the adult authority, and the rehabilitation officials to help him, he seemed content to go along in his criminal career. In this particular case, the series of church burglaries. We had good reason to believe that Bryson and his two accomplices, Miller and Henderson, were the guilty men. All three of them were booked at the main jail on suspicion of 459 PC. The next morning, Ben and I checked in at the crime lab. Lee Jones, you around? Yeah, I'm here. Come on back. Well, how about that? They gave the place a new coat of paint. Yeah, sure needed it. Good morning, fellas. How you doing, Lee? That set of burglary tools those thieves were using in that church last night. Just finished checking them over. Might have two or three things for you. What do you got, Lee? Have a look over here. Uh-huh. You find a set of tools. I take it the thieves had a lot of practice. All three of them had records. How about some of the other physical evidence you got, Lee? One thing at a time, Joe. First of all, these tools here. Uh-huh. Small sledge, three jimmy, pinch bar, and a screwdriver. I think we can tie them in with at least six of those church burglaries. I think we can do it for certain. Good enough for three convictions? I think so. The jury's listening. Well, how you got it worked out, Lee? Tool markings? Uh, that's part of it, yeah. Why don't you take a look at this pinch bar here? They did a lot of their work with this. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't have to tell you there aren't two identical pinch bars in the world that could leave the same exact markings on a piece of woodwork or on a safe. Yeah, there aren't a pair of tools in the world that leave the same markings on anything. Yeah, we know, but can you show a jury positively that the thieves used this pinch bar here on six of the jobs they pulled? That's the idea. I compared specimen markings of every one of these tools against the markings made at the point of entry on six of the churches these thieves broke into. In every case, the markings match perfectly. These are the tools that made them, no doubt about it. The screwdriver, the set of windows, and the pinch bar. Yeah, it sure won't hurt our case, Amy. Get anything else, Lee? I examined the end of the pinch bar under the microscope check the screwdriver and Jimmy's tool. The tips of each one of them are contaminated with particles of paint, different kinds of paint. Mm-hmm. I've already compared these paint transfers with samples of paint taken from the exterior of those churches that were broken into. Each one of them, they match all the way. The color of the paint, the age, degree of oxidation, the lead content, compares perfect. Now come over here, something else. Mm-hmm. What you got there, Amy? These are the shoes the two men you found inside the church were wearing. These are the foot impressions. The boys from Lake and Prince lifted off the floor in front of the safe inside the church. Yeah, so. Yeah, linoleum on that church floor showed up the dust impressions of the feet pretty good. Did you make the burn? Well, the boys from Lake and Prince did, yeah. Good impressions. See here? General size of the shoe, the make, heel impressions, the wear pattern on the sole here, the whole general characteristics of both pair of shoes. Matches up to a team. Mm, how much is that going to mean to a jury, Mike? Well, I mean a lot. It's the truth. The same thing I've been telling you. It's the same thing. I'd like to tell every cop in the department, if you can place an object at the scene of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, then don't go thrashing around looking for an object that's an exact duplicate. Mm. Don't play Hawkshaw. Any microscope will tell you there are no two things in this world exactly identically alike. I don't care if it's a pair of shoes, a gun, a crowbar, or your two front teeth. Now, that's all it up to me. Think you're going to have trouble? I don't know, Lee. You shouldn't have. You got the three of them right at the scene of the crime... That ought to be enough for the court? Yeah, I hope so. You don't sound sure. Well, Lee, there's only one time I'm sure about thieves like Bryson. Yeah? Let me check him in at San Quentin. Two days later, Charles Bryson and his two accomplices, Henderson and Miller, were arraigned in municipal court on a date set for their preliminary hearing. Four days later, the preliminary hearing was held and the three of them were bound over for arraignment in Superior Court. 
In the weeks that followed, before their arraignment and Superior Court trial, Ben and I worked along with the district attorney's office preparing the case against the three men, taking statements, running down additional evidence, checking and rechecking, piecing together the facts which we hoped would earn a conviction for each of the criminals. We weren't positive that had happened. The strongest part of our case was going to come out of the crime lab, the testimony of Lee Jones. And we knew as well as Lee did that, generally speaking, juries are not too much in sympathy with scientific facts when it has to do with physical evidence. Generally, they don't follow technical cases too well. We also knew that the three defendants had a good lawyer, a clever one. Getting convictions wasn't going to be easy. The trial opened in Superior Court June 2nd. Ben and I testified when we were called on. On the morning of June 9th, the jury retired to deliberate. Late that afternoon, we got a call from the Hall of Justice. Yes, Mitty. Mm-hmm, yeah. Both of them, huh? I see, uh-huh. Well, that's life, I guess. Yes, I. Jury's back, Joe. They came up with a verdict. What's the story? Anderson and Miller, they found them both guilty. First-degree burglary. Yeah, what about Bryson? They let him go. Well, maybe it was no great shock to us, but after the time and effort we put in on the case, it was a disappointment. The worst of the three criminals had been set free. At the trial, Bryson had taken the stand and told the court the same cock-and-bull story he told Ben and I, that he'd gone to the church, the scene of the burglary, to plead with Henderson and Miller not to commit the crime. Bryson had a good personality and a fast line of talk. It wasn't hard to see how he could convince a jury that he was only an innocent bystander. The biggest obstacle that stood in the way of convicting Bryson was that the prosecution, the district attorney, according to law, could not call to the attention of the jury Bryson's previous criminal record especially his two prior convictions for burglary. To them, because of the limitations of the law, he was presented as a private citizen with as much integrity and as clean of any previous guilt as you or your neighbor. Henderson and Miller were committed to the state penitentiary to serve sentences as prescribed by law, and Charles Bryson, shortly after the trial, left the city. Two months passed. Saturday, August 8th, I started on my vacation. Two weeks later, on August 22nd, I checked back in for work. Hi, Joe. Hi, Jim. What's been doing? Oh, not too much. How'd the vacation go? Oh, pretty good, thanks. Mother and I went up north to visit some relatives up in Marin County. It was a nice trip for her. She hadn't been feeling too well, you know. Oh, it's too bad. Getting any fishing done? A little, yeah. That's sure beautiful country up here. You been around? No, no, I took off today. Been putting in some full days while you've been gone. Uh, that's all. Anything special doing? Oh, nothing too big. String of chain store burglaries, south end of town. I've been working along with Ben. Yeah? Giving you much trouble? It's been going a couple of weeks. Not getting any better. I begin to feel the pressure a little. Well, how's it stand? Any leads on a suspect? Just one. Yeah? Guy by the name of Charles Bryson. When our suspect, Charles Bryson, left Los Angeles after his trial some three months before, we had reports that he was headed east for the city of Memphis, Tennessee. In subsequent weeks, we had word that he was also seen in St. Louis, Missouri, where police officers had him under surveillance as a possible suspect in a robbery there. On or about August 10th, the St. Louis police lost track of Bryson. A week later, the newest series of burglaries began throughout Los Angeles. The thief's M.O. matched that of Bryson down to the last detail. The places burglarized were chain stores, supermarkets generally. The method of entry was the same, prying open a back window with a pinch bar or similar tool. The manner in which the safes were opened in the various business places, that matched too. So did five sets of foot impressions found at the scene of five different burglaries, each of them made by a man wearing tennis shoes. The operation corresponded exactly to the way Bryson worked. But there was one big hitch in the investigation. Nobody could be sure Bryson was back in town. No one had seen him. No one had heard from him. Monday, August 24th, 8 a.m. 
got us running in circles so far, Joe. I can't figure. I bet lunch money is Bryson, but we can't even start to prove. Well, how about the people in town Bryson runs with? They all been checked out? The one we know about, yeah. His friends, relatives, always know him hanging out. We've been over it every inch of the way. If anybody knows, they're not saying. There's no trace of them. Yeah, that's a possibility. Maybe we're wrong. Go ahead. What do you mean, maybe we're wrong? Well, the only lead we've got is the M.O. Bryson isn't the only thief who operates that way. It could be another man using the same system. Yeah, we thought about that. You ran a check through the stats office? Yeah, uh-huh. The only known burglars in our records who operate like Bryson are either in jail or out of town or they're dead. We checked it through a couple of times. Keeps coming out the same way. Bryson's the only strong lead we got. Yeah, but I got it. Burglary Friday. Yes, sir. You know, sir, Sergeant Tabor's out right now. Is there any message? Well, I guess about ten minutes. Yes, sir, right. I'll tell him. Thank you. You sure the M.O. on all these jobs matches Bryson, huh? All the way. That's what's got me stumped. If the guy is pulling these jobs and he is in town, somebody should have spotted him. These chain stores he's hitting. We've had stakeouts on him for ten days. Uh-huh. I've got every informant we know watching for Bryson, and not a sign. Hopefully a minute ago, Jim said they'd call back. Oh, thanks. Got this teletype this morning. I've got an announcement from San Quentin. Might be a line on Bryson. Let me see. An answer on that mail watch we're asking for. Uh-huh. What angle's this, Ben? You remember Church Burgers, Miller, and Henderson, two lieutenants San Quentin? Oh, yeah. You asked Quentin for a mail watch on both of them, did you? Yeah, I figured there was a chance Bryson might write to him. Mm-hmm. Looks like it got us a lead. Well, what have they got there? Well, it's from the warden's office, and so it says, uh, regarding your request on information concerning Charles Bryson, on August 22nd, Anthony Miller, our number 172156J, received letter from person signing himself George Cameron. Contents of letter suspicious. Cameron, does that mean anything to you? I just checked Bryson's package again down R and I. Cameron was his mother's maiden name. Bryson's used it as an alias before, quite a few times. Uh-huh. How about the return address on the letter, Ben? Los Angeles? Moon Post Office, General Eleven. Monday, 10 a.m. We alerted the post office detail and arranged for a mail watch on all incoming letters through general delivery addressed to Charles Bryson, George Cameron, or to another of the suspect's known aliases. A week passed. No sign of Bryson, no trace of any of his correspondence through general delivery. Another week went by. Two more chain store burglaries. The M.O. in each case was the same. It matched closely to Bryson's known working habits. But despite our precautions and the close check we maintained on his friends and his known hangouts, the suspect still remained unseen and unheard from. On September 9th, an informant of Ben's called us at the office and told us he thought he'd seen Bryson the night before. Yeah, Matty, where was that? Mm-hmm, yeah, right, we'll check it, thanks. Bye. Bryson's supposed to have been seen there Vermont and Beverly Boulevard last night, drinking in a bar out there. You're pretty sure it was Bryson? He thinks so, yeah. Got the name of the place here. We can check with the bartender, see if he can identify Bryson's mugs out. Right. I'll get my top coat, huh? All right. I get it. Marjorie Friday. Yes, sir. When was that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got it. Yes, sir, right away. Post office detail. Bryson called for a meal at the general delivery half an hour ago. Where is he? They following? 280 Glenmore, apartment 6. He's there now. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. September 9th, Tuesday, 11.30 a.m. 
The burglary suspect, Charles Bryson, was placed under surveillance at the apartment where he'd gone immediately after calling for his mail at the general delivery window in the main post office. Three teams of men were assigned the job of following Bryson alternately, 24 hours a day. We waited for a chance to get into his apartment and search it while it was empty, but it never occurred. Somebody was always there, either Bryson or a tall, dark-haired woman, his common-law wife. During the week that followed, the suspect was watched everywhere he went. He attempted no burglaries. On the eighth day, the stakeout was removed. Three nights later, two burglaries were committed. Both jobs bore the marks of the suspect's M.O., but we couldn't prove a thing against him. We knew the setup we had was going nowhere. If we wanted to get Bryson red-handed, if we wanted a case against him that'd stand up in any court, we had to find a new approach. Lee Jones came up with an idea. Here's a job of stuff right here. The technical name for its emphasis. I guess you heard of it. I think I've heard you mention the name, Lee. That's about all. Some kind of luminous powder, isn't it? It glows in the dark. No, not exactly. Here, take a look at some. Okay. There, you see? Colorless, odorless, no smell at all to it. It's a coal tar product. We call it crystalline hydrocarbon. Mm-hmm, I see. Now, here's the point of the thing. When you take this anthracene powder and rub it into the surface of an object, it's completely invisible as naked eye. You never know it's there. Here, let me show you. How about my coat sleeves? Huh? Yeah, that'll do. Got the powder all over it. Some in your hand, too. Rub it in, like so. Mm-hmm. Now, can you see or feel any of the powder where I put it on? No, nothing there. Now, let me switch on this lamp here. This is an ultraviolet light. Now, watch when I turn it on your arm, where we rub down the powder. Mm-hmm. Well, look at your hand, Joe, like it's lighting up. Yeah, my coat sleeve, too. It's glowing. How about it? Will this stuff rub off, Lee? Try it. You're spreading it all over yourself, everything you touch. Yeah. Anything harmful in it, Lee? No. Now, watch when I turn the lamp off. You see? Gone. Never even know you had it on. Only time it shows up is under ultraviolet light. Well, does it stay on you indefinitely, Lee? No, the maximum is generally about, oh, say, 24 hours. Mm-hmm. You guarantee it'll work, huh? Well, all physics, Joe. Under the proper conditions, it's got to. It's just what I tell my classes up at the academy. Crooks and chorus skills have one thing in common. Yeah? They show up better when you put them under the right kind of light. When we left Lee Jones at the crime lab, we figured we had the potential solution in our hands, but there was still a lot to be done before we could go into any court of law with a case that we were positive was strong enough to convict Charles Bryson. Number one, we had to get into his apartment when it was unoccupied, find the set of burglary tools he was using, and douse them thoroughly with anthracene. The same for the clothes he worked in. Number two, we had to get Bryson into custody within 24 hours after he moved on a burglary job or the anthracene wouldn't work. Number three, we had to find the loot taken in the burglary in his possession. Ten days passed before we got a chance to make good on the first step. I get it, Joe. Right. Burglary and Merrill. Yeah, Jim. Mm-hmm, good. Fine, we'll be right out. Good break, Joe. And Bryson, what's that? They hauled him in on the traffic warrant, speeding. Book him in at the main jail right now. Good chance to go through his apartment. What about his wife? She's still up there, isn't she? She's on her way to put up bail for him, yeah? Apartment's empty. By the time Bryson was bailed out, Ben and I, along with Jim Tabor and Lee Jones, had combed through Bryson's apartment and finally uncovered a set of burglary tools and work clothes carefully hidden beneath the floorboards under a kitchen cabinet directly below the sink. Lee Jones contaminated each of the tools with the invisible anthracene powder and also the work clothes. We checked the apartment for any possible loot taken in the burglaries, but we found nothing. We put everything back exactly the way we found it, and then we left and went back to the office. We stood by until 4 a.m. waiting for a call that would indicate that Bryson might be out on another burglary job. Nothing happened. The next night, up until 10 o'clock, it was the same routine. 
At a few minutes past ten, we got a 459 call on a chain drugstore out on Alvarado Street. Lee Jones had his portable ultraviolet light all ready to go. Ben and I picked him up at the crime lab, and the three of us drove to the scene of the burglary. Straight back here, Lee. Can I help you with the light? I can handle it, thanks. There's the window they figured got in. Safe there in the corner. Yeah, there's not too much of it left. You all set, Lee? You got the extension card for the light, Romero? Yeah, right here. I'm just plugging it in. Yeah, okay. All set. All right, switch it on, will you? Right. Well? Yep. Seems like it. What do you got in the window there, Joe? Look at that. Ain't the same tracks all over, foot impressions there, tool marks on the safe, rough prints on the floor, on the wall. No question, he left plenty of trail. All right, let's get him. Lee Jones put in a call to the crime lab and ordered a photographer out to take pictures at the scene of the burglary. Lee and the photographer would stay at the scene to gather physical evidence and take pictures of the anthracene prints and markings for presentation in court. 10.52 p.m. Jones packed up the ultraviolet lamp and Ben and I took it along with us. We drove directly to Bryson's apartment. Nobody was there. No. Nobody in the bedroom either. How about that? I don't know. I don't get it. Bryson's had plenty of time to get back here. Over an hour. What about his wife? The only time we know she left was when she had to go bail him out in that traffic one. Yeah. Doesn't look like they pulled out, does it? There's a closet full of clothes in there, a lot of their personal things around. Yeah. Sure looks like they were expecting to come back. We might check with the apartment house manager. He could tell us if they gave notice to move. Yeah. If... Oh, let's see here. Now, what do you got? No, if you're on the desk. See, he says, um... Charlie, I'm sorry, but I told you it just doesn't work out with us. When you read this, I'll be on my way east. I don't want to be mean with you. I just think it'll work better if we forget each other, that's all. Thanks for everything so long. Sign Ruth. Well, she doesn't like him much either. No. Wait a minute. Uh, what are you doing? Police officers, Bryson. I'd like to talk to you for a minute. Well, I know who you are. I remember. What do you want? Man, you want to plug in that light? Yeah. Outlet right over here. What is all this? It said you wanted to talk to me. What's it all about? You all set, Ben? Just a minute. All right, okay. Turn it on. What are you doing? Hey, what are you trying to do to me? You've done it all to yourself, mister. Lit up like a Christmas tree, Joe. It's all over and hit hey. the foot. My clothes, your hands. What is it? There's light glowing all over them. What are you doing? It's a chemical, Bryson. Harmless. Same stuff you left all over the drugstore tonight. Pack up, Ben. Come on, let's go, Bryson. I don't understand. What's this whole thing all about? You'll understand it. Here. Huh? A note for you. Come on. All set, Jim. Let's go, mister. I just had it in Just a tramp. I guess I should have been smart about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Come on. How could I know? She said she was in love with me. I believed it. What am I going to say when they ask me? All our friends are all going to ask me. They'll say, what happened to Ruth? I'll say, what happened this time? What am I going to say happened this time? What are you going to say to the jury this time? The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 10th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 86, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Charles Lang Bryson was tried and convicted on three counts of first-degree burglary. 
This is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for not less than five years. However, due to his previous convictions on this and other felony counts, Bryson was judged an habitual criminal. He was sentenced to spend the rest of his natural life in the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Radio Days. Your home for the best of Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note. Don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.